You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organizations, business, and impact. Hi, I'm Ruba. Hi, I'm Peter. We are very pleased to welcome Zef Baida, business consultant, coach, and educator with a long career in technology-centered innovation initiatives. Uh, first, Zef, could you tell us a bit more about yourself and your career interests? Yeah, so first, thank you for inviting me here. I'm really happy to uh, talk to you today. Um, and thanks for the introduction. So um, my uh, name is Zef Baida. I'm located in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. My um, uh, area where I really uh, um, where I work uh, it is where data, technology, and business come together. So it's not about something really technical. It's not about something that is 100% business. Uh, uh, it's about how they all fit together. Doing business in the digital world. Um, I have the background of a computer science uh, major. So I did a bachelor and master in computer science. I did a PhD in information management, and then I spent most of my career in the corporate world, specifically in two companies. One is IBM, where I did strategy consulting on CXO level, uh, focusing on the public sector, and then Dun & Bradstreet, which is the world's uh, biggest B2B data provider, where I was a business development director. And currently, I'm working as freelance consultant. And um, as part of that, I also work indeed as educator, as you said, um, teaching at the University of uh, Rotterdam, the Erasmus University, and also at the University of Luxembourg. With remote working, it's possible to work internationally. That's great. Can you give us an overview of data, data ecosystem? Um, well, yes. Yeah. So actually, the interesting thing is um, first to understand what it is, because a lot of people are using terms like ecosystems uh, with different definitions, different interpretations. So it's sometimes becoming a kind of a hype. Um, and, and, and therefore, even though I'm going to give you some definition, actually, I don't like definitions. OK, what I the reason for me to talk about what it is, is not that you need to remember a definition it's that you need to understand what it is about so that you're able to reason about it, okay? So um, having said that, one definition, uh, I will say not of data ecosystems, but digital ecosystems, is an interdependent group of actors, enterprises, people, or things, sharing standardized digital platforms to achieve a mutually beneficial purpose, okay? This is a definition of the Gartner Group. And they say it's a definition of digital ecosystems, not data ecosystems. But uh, because data is the fuel of a digital uh, or world of a digital solution, then these two are very closely related. So in this de- definition of, of the Gartner Group, there are three elements that I think are important here. First, they say it's an interdependent group of actors. So it's telling us that by definition, there will be multiple actors involved, and there is some kind of dependency between them. Then it's telling us it's about sharing. They say sharing standardized digital platforms, but I will take it into sharing data in our case, because we're talking about data ecosystems. And uh, so the sharing is really a key element here. And the third key element is, uh, well, they talk about the purpose 
and they say the purpose is to achieve a mutually beneficial purpose. This is where I dare to disagree with Gartner Group, uh, because um, in my experience, you don't need to have a mutually beneficial purpose. You need to have a situation where everyone has a purpose that is being served. So the purpose doesn't need to be mutually beneficial. It needs to be such that each of them has a certain purpose and can achieve their purpose. Okay, And that's why uh, bringing that to the data level, for me, data ecosystem is an interdependent group of actors sharing data such that they can all achieve their purpose. And the three elements to always remember is that the, the, the various actors, the sharing of data, and that it needs to serve a purpose for everyone. And how would you say we could uh, create value with unused data? So this is actually, you, you may not really realize yet, but this is a massive question that you've asked. Because um, there, there are actually two questions in, in that question. One of them is how do you create data, sorry, value out of data? without the word unused. And the second one is, what is unused data and how do you create value out of that? Okay, so first you need to understand how you do it in general with data. Then you can talk about the unused data. So first, when I said before that ecosystems are sometimes a hype, so let's thrive on that hype for a few seconds. Um, if we look at the publications by really the leading uh, co consulting companies uh, like McKinsey and Company or, or the Gartner Group, they, they are saying that there is massive commercial potential there of generating value. So McKinsey said uh, two years ago, by 2030, digital ecosystems will account for around 60 trillion euro in revenue worldwide, 60 trillion. Um, and, and the Gartner Group said that by 2025, it will be 50 trillion. So even more aggressive um, uh, actually than, than, than McKinsey. So there's a lot of money there. People agree on that. But how actually do you create that money? And, and so in, when we talk about how you create value, um, uh, often people call this monetization. How do you monetize data? Okay, and, 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 and this is where actually most people make a, a mistake in their thinking. Okay, so a really important point is there is a myth. The myth is you can monetize and create value only by getting cash for something. That's a myth, okay? Because while indeed the traditional way of creating value is you sell something, you get money in return, there are a lot of other ways to create value. To name a few, you could say, um, I'm giving you something and you give me something else in return, not cash, but maybe another product or maybe the right to do something. Another mechanism could be, I'm giving you something, you are giving her something and she's giving me something. Okay, so it's a kind of a network. Nobody has an exchange one-to-one, -one, but we're all happy. Then there's the option of um, um, I'm giving you something and in return, you help me optimize my business process. So I, um, my, my business process either becomes more effective so I can 
generate more revenue in my own way, but you didn't give me that revenue, or that I can um, uh, be more efficient, so use less resources in my business process. That will also create value because it will reduce my cost. Because eventually companies look at their profit, which is the revenue minus the cost, right? So generating um, value, and that's really important to understand, is not just about having extra cash. You can have uh, different ways to create value. And even if it is about generating cash, it doesn't mean that I get the cash from the person that I give my product or data to, okay? can be from someone else. So the two elements to consider here in creating value is first, what kind of value? Is it necessary monetary or not? And be very much open-minded to not, because I'll tell you my secret, I think um, the future will be such that more and more value creation will not be product for cash, will be different. And the second element to consider is really from whom do you get the value, okay? So this is about creating value. And well, you did ask about unused data. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll say something about that because whatever I said now holds for how to create value from data or actually from any other product or service. But unused data. So first we need to understand data is an intangible object. That is really important. So. Let's say if you have a mobile phone, you sell your mobile phone to me, then you don't have it anymore. You cannot use it because it's a tangible object. But if you have data and you sell the data, do you still have the data? Can you still use it? What do you think? Probably you would say yes, because I still have a copy on my laptop, right? So the... Um, because data is intangible, then it's uh, the creation of data is different. So actually, you almost never sell data, almost never. Because when you sell the data, it's like you sell your mobile phone. It means you're never ever allowed to use it again and you're never ever allowed to keep a copy. So what you normally do is you sell a license to use data, okay? It almost never exists that people sell data. They always sell licenses to use the data for certain purposes. Now, what is dark data? Dark data is data that an organization has because they collect it, they process it, but they don't use it, okay? And the Gartner Group estimates that somewhere between 55 to 80% of all business data is dark data. Now you'd say, how is it possible that companies collect so much data and they don't use it? Well, the answer is most companies still are in, in the early stages of realizing how to work with data. They don't really understand yet the full potential and they collect much more data than they realize. I'll just give you an easy example. You go on um, a website of, a, let's say an e-commerce company, you log in, you buy a product. The company collects the data about your purchase. What did you buy, when, for which price, etc. But the company also collects data on how many times does this user log in? Where does this user log in from? And that data 
could actually be used for marketing purposes or maybe other purposes. And similarly, every organization that collects data, they actually collect more data than they realize. There's also what we call metadata. So your how many times you log in for the website, that is an example of metadata. And very often they collect data because they think we need certain data, but then they actually have data that they don't realize that there are other usages for it. And I'm going to give you what is in my view, one of the greatest examples ever of uh, creating value from uh, dark data, okay? So you are a little bit too young for actually knowing this example, but um, when, I, uh, uh, when I was, let's say, um, starting to work in the corporate world at that time, we didn't have yet really internet connection on our, on our mobile phones uh, to, to go to Google Maps and navigate our cars. And consultants, what do they do? Well, in the morning, they get into their car and they drive uh, to their clients and they're on the highway. And they need navigation. So at that time, there was a Dutch company called TomTom which back then was the leader in navigation devices. So in the cars, we actually, every time we went into the car, we put the navigation system in the car, we installed it, we turned it on and we use it to navigate. So TomTom was the market leader, but the flaw was the only way for TomTom to get traffic information was through radio frequency technology, which provided information that is 15 minutes old. So the best navigation systems in the world did not have real-time navigation uh, in, uh, sorry, traffic data, which resulted in people driving into the, into the traffic jams. And then what did they do? TomTom Tom signed an agreement with Vodafone. Vodafone was, or maybe still is, uh, a leading uh, telecom provider, especially in the B2B market. So all those, all those consultants that had the lease car, they also had a mobile phone and there was a good chance they had the Vodafone. And Vodafone, because they had all those people on the, on the roads all the time, they actually, through their telecom network, they knew the location of everyone. And by calculating the speed and the, sorry, the location and uh, per time, they could also see whether there is a tra traffic jam on the highway. But they never used that data because for, their, for them, it was irrelevant for Vodafone until they, they joined together and then they signed an agreement. Vodafone sold this dark data or actually the license to use that data, I should say. They sold it to TomTom and TomTom was able to be the first company in the world to launch a navigation system with real-time traffic data because they got that data from Vodafone where that data had been dark data for all that time. Now, I cannot tell you, I don't know what Vodafone actually got for this data, but this is a great example because the data was dark within Vodafone and they created value by joining forces with somebody from a completely different industry. And that's also a lesson learned. You always need to look outside of your industry. And so what's the impact on the, in the traditional transactional styles of company to, com to company action? Right. So actually, uh, that's really following up my last statement there, uh, because um, 
traditionally companies they sell uh, in a one-to-one transactions. I sell you something, you pay me, and 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 that's it. And traditionally companies do that with within very traditional boundaries. Companies have their suppliers and they have their uh, clients, and that is their ecosystem. Um, but in the in in the world that is being now, I would say under construction, what we see is that there is a rise of um, new business models where companies and organizations work outside their traditional ecosystems, and that has two implications, um, or two I would say types. So one type of that is that instead of having the mechanism of just selling to your traditional clients, you also look for, um, I would say, clients and or partners outside of your uh, traditional sector. So the example of Vodafone, where their clients typically were users of telecom services, so either companies that had uh, that needed telephones or consumers that needed telephones, um, but in the example that I gave, they went outside of that ecosystem and looked for new types of organizations to engage with. Um, in this case, a producer of hardware, navigation systems. And the second type of, of, of uh, impact here is the working in ecosystems. So rather than having just one-on-one -on -one relationship of I'm selling you, you paying me, we have more and more uh, ecosystems where I'm giving you something, you're giving him something, he's giving someone else something, and, and they're giving uh, me something, or even a more complex. So it doesn't need to be a circle. It can be a, a complex network where some people give, or some organizations give something to someone, um, uh, and, and someone gives something to someone else. So everyone, the idea is that everyone receives something and gives something, but it can be a very complex constellation. Of, of who is doing that. Um, so imagine, um, let's say if we take the example of Vodafone and, 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 and TomTom, and let's say we would stretch it beyond the original use case. So it could be that um, uh, Vodafone is making data available for TomTom. TomTom is then selling its services to a logistics company that needs to have a, a good av a, a ability to plan to plan how the trucks move through the uh, roads and uh, and in return um, the logistic company um, uh, would be able um, let's say uh, to pay some amount for uh, Vodafone or maybe the logistic company will uh, um, is so big they could say, okay, we promise Vodafone such a big contract in return. Let's say we have uh, 50 people, 50,000 people, uh, we, we buy for all of them Vodafone. So that gives Vodafone extra market share. That's also value. Okay, so those are all examples of constellations that you could come up with in the future that are the idea is it. Go, go away from, uh, or don't, not go away, but don't limit yourself by the traditional methods of one-on-one -on -one interaction. Yeah, I can see uh, how Vodafone and TomTom would get great value out of uh, the data, but are the data ecosystems just for large companies or can they be benefit to small companies as well? 
that is also a great uh, question um, because uh, in reality, when we talk about small companies, often people say it's it's the SMEs that are the engine of the economy because there are so many of them. Um, and in some countries like maybe Finland, there's even a higher percentage than elsewhere. So um, the idea is that um, everyone can benefit from that. Um, I do think that large companies have maybe I would call it an unfair advantage because they have a lot of negotiation power and um, and so it's more maybe it's easier for them to reach agreements with other because of the negotiation power however the um, advantage of the small companies is their agility Try to sign a data license agreement with a big corporation. It will take ages before their legal department approves that. But with a small company, you can really move faster. And so the small companies, they can um, more easily um, find someone to work with and do it on small scale. And then they will think later about how to expand. You see, a big corporation is likely to work with someone else or with a constellation of ecosystem, maybe only if, if, if they can offer a global solution. But a small company can say, okay, we only cater for the Irish market. So we only are looking for a small company that can help us with a solution now for the Irish market. And then they can move much, fa- much faster than the global corporation. And uh, is there a design angle here? Where do you see design taking place? Or uh, what is uh, design in the context of data? Okay, that's an interesting question uh, because when you talk about design, then often people think about IT um, or about technology. Um, So design in the sense of an engineer coming and creating a blueprint. um, And um, so one element to consider there I would say from a technical perspective is in order for data exchanges to work or data sharing, there needs to be data standardization. Okay, so when you design solution, always think about the standardization of data. However, the smaller your company is, the less this is a problem in my experience, because you collect data maybe from less sources and you're more flexible in dealing with non-standardization. Okay, but um, another element that I think is important here, a completely different type of uh, design is um, business design. So when I talk about creating ecosystems, then what is an ecosystem? We, We say it's a group of organizations that they share the data, such as they all achieve their purposes. So how do you design um, a sustainable business model? The the design of a sustainable business model for an ecosystem is much more complex than the design of a sustainable business model for a single company, because you have to take into consideration the needs and the goals of all these companies. And so within that design process, I would say, you it becomes more of a 
well, I, uh, maybe I would dare even say political exercise or an, uh, an, an exercise that requires really negotiation skills, soft skills, because you need to convince multiple organizations to work together in a certain setting. But that setting may not be the way they are used to. So you may need to convince them to change how they do things. And that's why in, when you design that ecosystem, you need to put much more emphasis on convincing people. Much more, that's a really much bigger component than when you design a business uh, model for a single uh, company. And could you talk to us a little bit more about uh, the consultancy mindset? Yes. So um, consulting um, traditionally is, has already been an area that requires a combination of hard skills with soft skills. Um, but I think that going on towards the future where more and more ecosystems will be the vehicle for producing value, um, we will see an even bigger shift to the soft skills. Just like I said now, you need to put more of an effort into the uh, convincing of organizations to work together. So on the one hand, the, um, the, the uh, consultant will still need to have the understanding of the technology, the understanding of data, etc. Um, but you and they will need the generic consulting skills that will not change. So the analytic skills, communication skills, presentation skills, all of that will remain. Um, but the extra dimension, the new dimension of the soft skills required from the consultant will be the creativity in deriving new ways to use data. So consider, the person who came up with the idea that the location data that Vodafone has can be used for TomTom, that's a brilliant idea. They should have like a Nobel Prize for creativity. Uh, it's totally thinking out of the box. Um, so this is the type of skills that uh, the future consultant will be. The added value of the consultant will be to help the organization look outside of, of their, uh, let's say, their box because very often the people that are within that box they are so much trained to think about only the scope of their box that they don't think outside of the box and that's where the consultant uh, can help but one more thing that i will add there about the consulting skill that is really specific to data is data literacy skill so um, um that's something that the consultant will really need to bring to the organization. I see you, you're eager to ask me something on that, so go ahead. Yeah, uh, I want to ask, what do I need to be data uh, literate? Do I need to learn uh, to program or to learn statistics? Okay, so I can uh, um, um, give you the, uh, the sign, you can relax now, you don't need that. Okay, um, I'll make a distinction in my answer between the data scientist and the person in a business role. Okay, business role for me is anything outside of the IT, whether it's an operations manager working in logistics or whether it's a CFO 
or whether it's uh, um, any any actually any role that is not within the IT or data teams. So um, starting with the uh, the letter, so the business roles. Um, I would dare to, to make a bold statement. I would say that the vast majority of the business professional population currently doesn't possess the data literacy skills that are required in order to succeed in the data economy. Okay, so most of them were uh, educated before data was a hype. Okay, Even when I did my PhD in information management, we didn't have those sexy terms like data science. You know, people were doing AI, people were doing analytics, but this was just business as usual. No one was thinking of this as, as being a sexy term. Uh, it was like a nerdy thing to do. Um, but now, and, and so most of the professionals, they don't have the understanding of what really data is. They don't understand the implication of data being an intangible object and what does that mean? They don't understand how to evaluate the quality of data, right? If I give you, let's say, the newest telephone of Apple or the newest iPhone or the newest telephone of Samsung, you don't even have to look at the telephone. You will already say this is a high quality telephone, right? Because you have a certain understanding of, of, of that. But if I give you a data set, will you be able to tell me this is high quality data or not? Most probably not. And if the data has low quality and you make decisions based on that data, you will drive your organization to the ground because the decisions that are taken on bad quality data will be bad decisions, wrong decisions, unless you're lucky by random uh, probability. Um, and, and so the ability to evaluate quality of data is actually becoming of great importance for the CEO. But which CEO is able to assess quality of data? I would dare to say almost none of them. The good news for them is they don't need to do it themselves. They need to have enough people that can do it for them, but they need to understand enough to be able to guide these people and to ask them critical questions. And the, when I talk about data literacy, for me, the biggest problem is that the business people are not able to do exactly what I described now. And that is why they will fail with, when they work with data. And the problem when they fail with data after one or two times, they will say, okay, we tried working with data and it fails, it doesn't deliver results, which is a wrong conclusion because if the failure is due to a lack of understanding of how to use data as a tool, then you cannot blame the tool. You, you need to blame the user. So when we talk about data literacy, for me, the most important thing is to educate the business users. And the consultant, and now we get back to the previous question, the consultant needs to be able to do that, to tell the business users exactly what it is, those critical things that they are unaware of that they need to understand. And the data scientist, last but not least, the data scientist cannot be only a nerd, cannot be only a, a pure statistician, because if the business people don't understand data well enough, they are often not 
well uh, uh, in play, uh, they're not able to, to ask the right questions. So the data scientist needs to understand the business well enough, not to the degree that the CEO does, but well enough to understand the business, to ask critical questions to the degree that if they see something unexpected in the data, they understand that it is unexpected and they go to the business and ask, hey, I found something. Could that be of interest? Why does that happen? So they need to be explorers. They need to understand the business and explore the data in a way that could help solve business problems. Thanks a lot, Siv. This has been really insightful. I think we have some questions from the audience as well. Uh, some people are eager to ask. Hello, my name is Max. Uh, thank you very much for the, for the talk. Very, very interesting. I was just thinking, um, I think we can all agree that like sharing data and um, enabling data is a, is a good thing. But like big companies, they have legacy systems and legacy processes. So what do you think about the part of like change management, working with the people of the company if you change processes or improve processes? Isn't that a big challenge as well, which comes on top of, of enabling and using data? Yes, excellent question. Thank you, uh, Max, for this question. Um, so the, the, the answer is you are you, you, you spot on. And this is exactly like um, 10, 15 years ago when big IT uh, projects were introduced, then um, there was a, a, exactly the same need for change management. Why? Because the way the uh, IT systems changed uh, uh, the business processes, the way of working, that had to be, um, I, I would say, not only accepted by the people, but embraced and used to achieve a certain purpose, but they were not used to doing that. And today we have exactly the same with data. People are not used to working with data. People are not used to thinking about how can I monetize data. People are not used to um, thinking outside of, let's say, their traditional business processes. So the answer is yes, you need that change. And data literacy, so uh, educating people on how to use data is part, in my view, of that uh, change process. Um, but definitely, um, it's important to understand that we're not talking here about bringing some uh, smart with kids that can do everything with uh, data manipulation, letting, letting them do the magic. That is not going to work. You need to make that part of the organization. And, and that is why um, I, I believe that the successful data teams are not those that reside within the IT departments. Successful data teams are those that reside within the business. Because and, and successful data projects are projects where business people, uh, IT people, and data people work together. Because otherwise, it's an IT project. If you only put the data under the IT department, it's an IT project, and the business has other things to do. That is, uh, um, that is not the optimal way, if I would phrase it very uh, uh, mildly. Thanks. Uh, my name is Hanel. Uh, so just a question around kind of GDPR and uh, privacy. So Apple, in their, I think their latest iOS, um, just put a filter where you can not be tracked and Facebook as a result lost billions a year. 
Um, so from that kind of point of view, do you think it's a good or bad thing that so there might be less uh, money to be gained from data, but it's kind of better in the long run for the consumer? What are your thoughts on that? All right. So um, Apple CEO uh, several years ago made a statement saying uh, we are not a data company or we're not in the data business. I actually wrote back then a blog on that. And my, if I remember correctly, the title of my uh, blog article was uh, Apple CEO and, and then the, the quote, we're not a data company. And then the question, really? Um, and my answer was, um, sorry, that's simply incorrect, uh, if not misleading. Um, I think that nowadays every company is a data company. And um, because data is a relatively new product and a lot of people are still really not don't a lot of people don't have yet an understanding of what data is then um they're also not able to protect themselves from the dangers of abuse of data and i think that what's happening in europe is a process uh, all around the world but specifically in europe where we have gdpr it's a process where um, the regulator is taking the role of protecting uh, the citizens in a place where the citizens are not yet able to protect themselves. Because a lot of people, they do not understand the risks of their data being used. They don't, you know, especially like now already it's better, but if you go back eight, 10 years ago, what kind of user would think about uh, uh, how may the app producer of the app that I use on my mobile phone, how may they use the data? Probably no one. And I would dare to say that statistically, maybe if we say 95% of you, the people sitting in this class here today, when you download an app, then you don't really do due diligence about who is the maker of the app. Is it a company that I trust or not? Because you give them access for their uh, for your data. And today, the easiest way if you want to abuse data is create this nice game or something cute, put it on TikTok. People will distribute it and they will say, oh, this is really a cute app, download it. It puts a rabbit on your, a smiling rabbit on your phone. And then people just love it, they download it. And the app has then their permission saying uh, the app can, uh, let's say, access your uh, contact list because, you know, you want to be able to send it to your friends via WhatsApp. So the app, app has a legitimate reason to access your contact list. But once you give them the, the permission to access your uh, address book, they can extract all the information from there and, you, and, and, and it's up to them what they do with it. And you did not, in most cases, in almost all cases, do any due diligence to see who is behind that cute app that you downloaded. So um, that is why I think it's really important that the regulator puts um, uh, those mechanisms in place to help protect the people, because this is clearly a place where technology advances much faster than the understanding of people. And that's why the regulator is, is, is taking a stance here. And I think that in addition to that, as we move on more and more to the future, we will see a situation where 
consumer hold uh, technology companies responsible for abuse of their data. So consumers are becoming and will continue to become much more dominant in the voicing their uh, concerns. The worry there is that the consumer is easily going to voice the concern to big companies like uh, uh, um, Facebook, like uh, maybe Google, uh, but not to the small app producer sitting in a faraway country that uh, developed this, this app that puts the smiling rabbit on your face and sucks up all your contact details from your phone because they don't even think about that. And um, the, the guidance or maybe the tip that are in terms of data literacy educa education that I wanna do here is really be more aware of those risks uh, when you, Whenever you download an app, whenever you give someone access to your data, there's the question of who is that? Do I trust them? And the other thing is, uh, what are they allowed to do with my data? And if you don't limit what they're allowed to do with your data, then you know you can just as well go to a random person on the street and give them a copy of your address book because that is what you're doing. And the regulator will put continue to put more and more restrictions on companies in order to protect the consumers from exactly those risks. Uh, my name is Aditya. I wanted to ask you a point on the thing you have mentioned before, like how it's different for large companies and small companies. Small companies have more agility and faster process, but at the same time, apart from the regulations, how can small companies be better in terms of data security? So how can they be better? Well, um, I would say um, I I fear I don't have a great uh, answer for you. First, because I'm not a data security specialist. That's really a profession by itself. Um, but um, what I can say here is um, with big companies, they have bigger risks in terms of exposure. And also because they have more users, they have more IT systems that often it, it's a chaos and old systems that are less protected. Younger companies, startups, they have the benefit that they, uh, they don't have legacy. When they start something now, they can start with uh, the best technologies available now. They don't need to deal with large uh, ERP systems that were created 50 years ago, uh, or, or you know, even if it's 20 years ago. Um, so they have the advantage there, but uh, for data security, I would really encourage you to uh, have a talk maybe sometime with a specialist on data security because that is uh, an intriguing area and becoming more and more important. Okay, I think we'll wrap it uh, up here. Uh, thank you, Zef, for talking with us today and sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thanks a lot, Zef. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission.